for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 21. We're in this series entitled Shaped. And in this series, we're talking about series, we are talking about how it is that Christians live for God in the world. We are God's glory bearers. And we've seen that among his people in the Old Testament, that God's desire, God's will for his people was to bear his glory, live his glory out in the world. And so how is it that we take a book that was written so many thousands of years ago and translate its application to us today in understanding us and understanding uh, for our own lives. And so today we've talked about uh, how to approach living uh, in a truth-honoring, gospel-centered way today. And we're beginning to move into specific topics. We've talked about our identity as Christians and what that means as glory bearers. But now we're, we're moving into some topical material in the book of Deuteronomy as, as Moses writes about it in the law. And we're asking ourselves, how do we understand this to live it out today. And so today we come to the issue of sexuality and immorality, and we're going to talk about that. I want to begin with a story, though, before I uh, move into the text. So keep your finger on chapter 21. I'll be right back there. As a matter of fact, I'll hold that. Maybe it'll help me hurry. I want to tell you a story about Michael and Kate. I don't know Michael and Kate, and I don't think any of you know Michael and Kate. And if you do know Michael and Kate, you won't know whether the Michael and Kate I'm talking about is the Michael and Kate you know, okay? So we're all good on that. Actually, I just heard this story this weekend. I felt like it really uh, served the purpose that I was wanting to accomplish. But a counselor was relating this story that a book has been written about, so the people knew about it. But Michael and Kate were college students. Kate was a freshman, her freshman year, and Michael was an upperclassman, and they met, and in the spring of their college, uh, in the spring of that year, they began to date, and they really hit it off, they did well together, and uh, really enjoyed spending time together, and were spending an increasing amount of time together, and one night, they went out on a date, and when they came back to Kate's apartment, uh, Michael came in just for a moment, and, and they were kissing, and Michael began to tell Kate how much he loved her, and, and just uh, how strong his affections were for her, and how much he really wanted to express uh, that love for her. And one thing led to another. Kate told him, my roommate's not coming home tonight, and they ended up sleeping together. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's the soft way that we say they had sex. And so what began to transpire the next morning took their relationship in somewhat of a, bit, a different direction. It seemed like everything was really good. They were excited about the relationship. And Kate woke up the next morning and she thought to herself, you know, I didn't really know the relationship had progressed that far, but, but I knew we were doing well together and I like him and I don't know him too terribly well, but I felt like, you know, it was okay. And so I didn't see any reason to stop. So she began to get really excited about the future of this relationship. Well, they spend an increasing amount of time together. 
But in this amount of time they were spending together, a couple of things began to happen. First of all, they began to spend less and less time with other people and just kind of insulate to spending time with one another. And in that spending time with one another, they began to do less and less of just being out, enjoying the city, you know, going out to eat. And they ate at home more in Kate's apartment more often. And then they would just watch a movie and, and they would start to make out on the couch. And then from the couch, it would end up in the bedroom. And this became a really regular pattern several nights a week. And then Kate thought that the relationship was going great. She thought that everything was good and Michael was enjoying the relationship and and so Kate began to think to herself, you know, this summer I'm supposed to go home for the summer, but I know Michael's going to be living here, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a job so I can stay here. So she did. She talked to her parents about it and, and told her parents that she wanted to get a job so she could stay in town for the summer, and they said, sure. So she found a job, she got the job, and was so excited about it, and she came home that evening, and Michael was at the apartment, and she told Michael, she said, Michael, you're never going to guess what happened. He said, what? He said, I got a job this summer, and I'm going to stay here for the summer she said our relationship is doing so well that I just want to to make a deeper commitment to it and and I want to see where this is going to go because if we keep doing this well you know we could end up married Michael was just quiet began to look down at the ground a lot more instead of looking at Kate in her eyes and he said, yeah, yeah, Kate, that's great, that's great. So it was a little awkward that night, and Michael decided he'd turn in early. So he went back to his apartment. The next day, he called Kate, and he said, you know, I don't think this is going to work out. We, we need to part ways. And he broke up with Kate. Kate was dumbfounded. She said, I, I thought our relationship was doing so well. Now, what you know and what we are about to hear about this relationship from this point forward is because of what they shared with the counselor individually as they were talking. You see, Kate thought the relationship was doing so well, and while she felt like it progressed really fast on that first night they had sex together, and she was confused about that, but she said the relationship was doing so well, just thought, let's, let's let this go and see where it goes. And so she was trying to make a deeper commitment to Michael because she thought that's what he wanted and what the relationship needed. And so she was running hard after the relationship and doing everything she could to make sure he was happy and that, you know, she was a good girlfriend and whatever all that means. And the counselor said she sat there with Michael and said, well, Michael, what happened to you? He said, well... Man, I thought the relationship was going great. And all of a sudden, she wants to start talking about marriage. And then she wants to spend all her time around me. And I just, I said, I felt smothered and I couldn't breathe in the relationship. He said, I just knew I had to get out. Anything about that sound familiar to you in any way? Maybe somebody you know, maybe a situation you've been in. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. You see, I, I wish today's sermon could be different. I wish today I could preach to the church, the, the blood-bought church of Christ, and I could exhort us in the truth of God's Word, and I could encourage us in what it says, and, and then I could say, you know, and the world doesn't believe this, and here's the way that they live, and let's go love the world with the truth of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what I know to be true from reading this book. Sexual immorality is as prevalent in the church as it is in the world. 
So I know I'm preaching to people today that are enslaved, that are living in darkness. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Some of you very likely aren't. But I'm under no delusions to believe that there's only one or two in the room that can really hear what I'm about to say. I'm under a very deep, strong conviction that I wish there wasn't an empty chair in the room. Everybody needs to hear what's about to get said. And so, since you're with us today, I pray that this comes with strong conviction. I pray that it's received with just a deep openness. And I pray that the Spirit of God is able to help us. Because friends, sin is real. And it destroys. This is not a we versus them sermon. Because this is not a them issue. This is our issue. And the overwhelming majority of sexual immorality in the Bible is dealing with people in the local church. Life point, I want us to labor as a church that believes and obeys God's word on sexuality and on immorality while working to welcome sexual sinners in the hospitality of the gospel with the hope of the gospel. That is so easy to say. It is so very difficult to work out. We'll consider several Deuteronomy passages where Moses identifies a number of different situations and instructs people in godly sexuality. Ultimately, then, we will turn our attention to see this. And let me give you the bullseye for where we're headed today. Here's what we will ultimately see. Jesus forgives sexual sin and he redeems every place that it damages for greater glory. So, in everything I say today, I'm driving to this one end for you to believe that Jesus forgives sexual sin and He redeems every place that it damages. Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning in verse 10, and in the interest of time, and we'll need all the help we can get, I'll warn you now, I'm not going to read all the text But I'm going to explain to you what's taking place in the text. In verses 10 through 14 of Deuteronomy 21, he begins by talking about when they go out to war against their enemies and the Lord their God gives them into his hand and they take captive of them. And in these captives there will be beautiful women and some of the warriors will want to take these beautiful women as their wives. And so here's what he says. He addresses how it is that you should treat these female captives in war that are taken as wives. And the law outlines a proper way to treat and relate in wartime situations. Now, let me give a little bit of context commentary, if I can. We don't have time to work through every minutia of situation that we confront here. 
specifically what is the ethic of wartime and what about taking captives why isn't that wrong because slavery is bad and what about this and what about that we'll confront those kind of cultural conditions that they were facing that we no longer face and quite frankly very difficult for us to even understand But I'm going to, for the interest of time and the message today, I'm going to pray that you'll give me some grace in not fully explaining and working through each of those situations and just trust that where we're going with this is really the core of the passage. And then if you have further questions about why this or why that, you can email me, you can call the church, and I'll give you an explanation and, and, and try to point you to resources to help you more fully understand the context that this was being written in. But four provisions are outlined to protect the captured woman. That's what I want you to see here in verses 10 through 14. The first prohibition or teaching about sexuality and immorality is a provision outlined to protect the woman who is captured because she was one of the enemy, but now is being taken as a wife. And here they are. First of all, she is not to be raped and she is not to be enslaved, but she is to be afforded the full status of a wife. If a warrior wants to take her as a wife, that's okay. He can take her as his wife. But she cannot be made a slave and she cannot be raped. She must be regarded with the full value of a woman. The second provision that was she should be given time to adjust to this new situation. And she should be given time to mourn the loss of family. And and this time should be no less than a full month. The third provision is that the law restricts that soldier then as a new husband, that that, that it restricts him to be able to postpone all sexual intimacy until after that full time of mourning. In other words, he can take her as his wife, but that relationship cannot be consummated sexually until the end of this season of mourning. And the fourth provision that the law makes is that if a man changes his mind on marriage, that she becomes a free woman in the new land. So in other words, she cannot be sold as a slave, but rather her freedom is granted to her in the land. So what I want you to see in this is that that in every way, the law favors the vulnerable here. The law is protecting the weak and the helpless. And unless you think that this passage could not apply to us today because we're not bringing female captives home from war, nor should we, let me reframe your thinking and let me talk very briefly about some of the implications of these verses that we can then make application to for our day and time. And I think this is a very practical way that LifePoint is striving to serve our city uh, uh, that, that is directly an implication of the provisions given in this law. We're entering a war that we have seen on the rise in our culture, and it's the war against human sex trafficking. You do a little bit of research and look at the statistics and what you'll find over the last 10 to 15 years, the volume of sex trafficking in our culture, yes, this pristine little safe Ozarkian bubble that we live in. And listen, friends, I love the Ozarks. But let's not be blind to the reality of what's taking place. We've known I-44 is a major drug corridor for decades. And guess what else is running up and down the interstate? Human and sex trafficking in America finds its greatest soil to grow in in 
areas of high tourism. Do you know what city in Missouri has the number one tourist attraction in the state of Missouri? Springfield. Now, I'm not saying they're associated with it. I'm just saying if you didn't know about Branson too, Branson's a very touristy kind of area. Go down there next month and see if you don't get hung up in all the traffic. I'm not blaming a business and I'm not blaming a city, but I'm saying those are cultures that these predators prey upon because there's a high flow of traffic and it's easy to get lost in all the people and the exchanging of people. And so statistics show us that it's risen to an incredible uh, uh, level statistically over the last 10 to 15 years And in entering into this war against sex trafficking, we want to provide a hopeful message, a a safe refuge, and a warm welcome potentially even into our fellowship if we have that opportunity. And so my point is when this law makes provision for the protection of the vulnerable, how much more does the gospel propel us to go to them with God's healing power and his message of hope? And so I believe that application is faithful to the implications of what this law is teaching us. And so as we move to the next section, chapter 22, we'll see again some laws concerning specifically sexual immorality. We're going to look at several in this chapter beginning in verse 13. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. This first situation that Moses describes was a man who tries to disavow his marriage by accusing the young girl and her family of lying about her virginity. There was a lot at stake here in their culture, uh, the honor of the family name, and I mean that in a good way, not necessarily in a bad way. But then to provide for this family a way is provided to defend their character and their honesty and their integrity. And a severe punishment is then provided for the one who is found to be lying. Either the heavy fine for the wrongful accuser or death for the adulterous liar. Now I do need to talk about this penalty for adultery for just a moment because I know it smacks us uh, culturally uh, that, that that could never have happened. But friends... In Scripture, death as a penalty in the law demonstrates the seriousness of adultery against God's holiness. Let me just put it on level playing field for you. You have the greatest sin of all is idolatry, right? There's the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, right? You know what adultery is? It is idolatry displayed in sexuality. It's the same. And I'm not categorizing sins here. I'm just helping you understand the gravity of what adultery is really in the eyes of God and how the law regards it. So we see that and we know that because those who are caught in adultery face the death penalty. Now, let me explain this as well. 
because in just a moment you're going to see this, but just because the death penalty was the extent or the maximum uh, um, um, sentence that could be given for the law, it doesn't mean that in every case it was equally applied in that way. And we understand that because there is always a maximum sentence that you can receive for something in the world, but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to receive the maximum sentence. Rather, it's left up to the judge, right? And so that's what we see. These verses also show the seriousness of adultery by the just punishment. The law is fair in its judgment against either party in this adultery, not allowing for a double standard, either for the man or for the woman. But this is not always the case, is it? Especially with sin. We like our double standards, don't we? We like our double standards because I don't want to be held to the same standard that I plan to hold you to. I mean, that's, that's the nature of religion and that is the nature of self-righteousness. Double standards rule the day. Here's where we see this double standard come to fruition in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11, the Pharisees, you remember who the Pharisees were? They were righteous, indignant, pompous church leaders. I thought I might get a, a, a laugh out of that. Anyway, they bring an adulterous woman before Jesus for stoning, pressing him for an answer to say she was caught in adultery. Now, where is the double standard in this? They only brought the woman. And listen, I don't have time for a birds and the bees talk today, but it takes two to tango, right? Or whatever they're calling it these days. They didn't bring the man. They brought the woman. Why? Because in their minds, they were totally justified in their double standard. And they applied it in this way. And so they showed their double standard when they brought the woman, but not the man. So Jesus bends down. What does he do? He begins to write in the dirt. And he says this, Let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And when Jesus looked up, there was only one person standing in front of her. Friends, this is the greatest news that I could tell you today. You know who the one person standing in front of Jesus was? The adulterous woman. And you know what Jesus did to her? Do you think Jesus knew the law about this? Oh, he knew it. He was it. Right? Jesus said what in Matthew 5? I am the fulfillment of the law. He's the living word. He knew the law. And what does the law say should happen to an adulterer? Death. Death. You, you don't have to excuse that. You don't have to explain that. That's the law. And if someone is caught in adultery, then death is just, that's what they deserve. Give it to them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Right? And what did Jesus do? He says, has no one here condemned you? She said, no. Then I don't condemn you either. Go. Sin no more. I don't know where you find yourself today. And I don't know what shadow that you may be living under in sin. But I can tell you, there will not be a greater message that you will hear today than the words that Jesus speaks to this woman who is deserving of death. What a powerful, powerful rule we see applied here. The law has always been fair to sinners. The problem is we don't want fairness for sin. 
Thankfully, Jesus always forgives those who repent and trust in Him. Trusting Jesus means you walk away from your sin and judgment to receive forgiveness and cleansing that you might walk in obedience with Jesus. I need you to hear that. I'm going to repeat it. Trusting Jesus means you walk away from your sin and judgment to receive His forgiveness and cleansing that you might walk in obedience with Him. Verse 22 continues with the second scenario that Moses describes. He describes a classic case of adultery with the appropriate punishment for both. He says, if a man or a woman are caught in adultery, they deserve death. And so it's just cut and dried. It's there. Why? Because the seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And death was the appropriate application uh, uh, sentence that was applied in that scenario. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 22 give us our next. And it tells us this. Because the next five or six verses are going to talk about a situation that arises where a woman potentially could be raped, but in different scenarios. And so verses 23 and 24 says this, that if there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, let me just give you this insight. If a woman is betrothed in the scripture, she is the same as married to us, okay? Betrothed and marriage, there was a distinction in the scriptures, but in our understanding of what's taking place, there's no difference between betrothal. It's, it's like more than just engagement. It's married to us, okay? So just so you understand, we're talking about a woman who is committed in a married relationship, though it's not consummated yet. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so this situation describes two people who meet in the city market, a very crowded place with many people almost shoulder to shoulder. And you say, how do we know that they were both guilty of adultery? Because it's very difficult to ascertain the intent or the motive of a person's heart. And the way that the writer does this is he gives us a clue that what happened was they met and then it says this, that he lied with her or he goes and lies with her. In other words, there is mutual consent, therefore there is mutual guilt in this scenario. This is not rape. This is consent from two consenting adults or people. Now, the fourth, it moves right along into verse 25, 26. 26 and 27, it takes the same situation and it moves it out to a wonder, uh, uh, um, excuse me, a wilderness, uh, a place where there is no one else around. And it says this that he seizes her and lies with her. And so they're in a place where even if she did cry out, no one could have heard her say anything. And so she couldn't have tried to get help because no one was there to hear her. And we know this clue in the scriptures because it says what? That he didn't just lie with her, but rather he seized her and lie with her. And grammatically speaking, that is a definition of rape. Okay? 
And that's what the scriptures are saying. And so the woman receives the benefit of the doubt because there was no one there around to help her. The very next scenario, verses 28 and 29, also protects a vulnerable girl from being used and abused for personal pleasure because it says this, that the man again seizes her and lies with her. So we have these clues to understand what Moses was saying and the law strictly forbids this type of action and provide strict punishment for it. But here's what I want you to get. The law is making provision to protect and to guard the vulnerable and the helpless. It's not saying these are situations that ought to happen. It's saying these are situations that do happen. And it's trying to make provisions to help those, to guard those that are vulnerable from not being doubly abused in the situation. And then verse 30 uh, reiterates sexual integrity by protecting and honoring family relationships. And, and it says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. It's talking about his stepmother, not his mom here. We know that because there's another law that's given in Leviticus 18, 6 and 7 that says a man should not sleep with his own mother. But he's talking about a stepmom and it says that it should not be because it would mean to expose oneself to the intimacy of the prior relationship in the family and thereby dishonoring the father, the parent, or that relationship. You're like, man, who knew this was all in the Bible? It gets better. It gets deeper. I mean, you, you start talking about these situations and people like start getting nervous. But the law protects the vulnerable and it provides measures to aid in discerning situations. And how does it do that? By the actions that are taken. As I said, a person's motive and intent can never truly be discerned. But you can always measure an action, right? The law measures intent and motivation, how? As it is revealed through a person's action. And so the law, the law is guiding honest determination that favors the vulnerable and the helpless so that they will not be doubly abused. You see, these laws, they don't provide a comprehensive spectrum, but rather they're addressing specific situations to guard marriage and to guard the sexual union by explaining a fuller understanding of adultery or forms of adultery or forms and different ways of sexual immorality. And so the final two laws that we'll look at are in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 5. Verses 1 through 4 uh, 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 addresses divorce. And the law addresses divorce in this way. It's not trying to legislate divorce, but rather it's trying to understand sexual immorality in the midst of this situation. And Moses describes it to explain a life situation so that people could relate to it. Jesus actually takes these four verses in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19 because, again, the Pharisees, remember who they are? The Pharisees come to him and they try to corner him and they try to catch him in a situation where it seems like he's contradicting himself. And he says, what about this? Moses said uh, that, that we, we could get divorced and, and he made allowance for that. And what does Jesus tell us? He says that, that divorce is never desirable, but rather it happens because people's hearts grow hard. And so he gives us commentary on what Moses is teaching. And then verse 5 of chapter 24, I'm just going to tell you, this is good marital counseling for any young couple about to or just married. 
it says this, that, uh, that, that when, once they get married, uh, that the man cannot be taken to war, cannot join the army for at least a year because it's trying to help them guard against, hear me, overscheduling and prioritizing commitments over establishing the strength of the marriage relationship. And so it's telling us that the marriage relationship should receive first priority of time for the couple in order to learn how to relate to one another. And you see, it's only people who have been married less than six months that need to know that they're going to have to learn how to relate to each other, right? It's when your head stops spinning from being so silly in love. And, and that's a good thing. I'm not against the silly in love part. But at some point you go, when did this happen? When did all of this happen? Right? And you go, oh, this is marriage. All of that, that was like, like early, like crazy love marriage. But now it's the real relationship. You see, what the law is doing, beginning with the seventh commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, it is guarding God's design for sexuality. And the law reveals God's glory in sexuality by the way that it guards his creational design for sexuality. And adultery is the highest treason against godly sexuality as it breaks the highest honored human covenant. Of marriage. And hear me, friends, every sexual prohibition and command serves to honor God's sexual union in marriage. But friends, God's design for sexual or for sexuality transcends the law by creation. You see, it didn't start in the law, it started before that. Sexuality is not conditioned by these three, it's not conditioned by time. You need to hear this. Sexuality is not conditioned by time. It is not conditioned by law. It doesn't change. Moses is teaching them how to deal with situations, but it's not changing God's design for sexuality. And it is not governed by culture. Did you hear that? That's real important for where we're moving towards today. God's design for sexuality is not governed by time. In other words, oh, that was then, this is now, right? It's not governed by law or not created by law. It's not created or governed by culture. Where do we get it from then? That's what I want you to see. I want you to see God's design for sexuality. Turn back towards the left in your Bible all the way to the first chapter of Genesis. And I need to very briefly introduce you into God's design for sexuality. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 27. And it simply says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now that word for him does not mean men as we would think it means. It's the universal word for people. Created him. It's plural. As a matter of fact, there are no men and women at this point yet in Scripture. That's the next phrase. Okay? And it says this. Male and female, he created them. Before that phrase, there is no male and female. It's just him. And then God says, people will have two genders as well. Male and female. So here's the first aspect of godly sexuality I want you to see from this passage. Sexuality originates in creation as male and female. 
This is a creational command, a creational order. The very way that God governed everything that he put into order when he spoke in the first chapter of Genesis is designed in the very gender of sexuality today. And that originates in creation. That's why the law does not govern it. The law guides it, but it doesn't ultimately govern it. When God created man, he designed them by sexuality or gender. Sexuality identifies the core essence of our design as male and female. God created people as sexual beings by his design. Now, sometimes I got to tell you, as a pastor, I've, I've been in ministry for 26 years and you use the word sex in church, you will freak people out. But it's interesting to me because God's the one that created it. It's ours, friends. The one that we worship, he's the one that put this into order. The world does not get to define this because they didn't think it up. All they've done is screw it up. And when I say they, I mean us in that, right? That's what sin has done. And so this first aspect we see is this, that sexuality, hear me, forms the deepest, purest form of personhood and identity, male and female. Gender defines who we are. It's not a personal choice that we make. Male and female are created equal in value, in dignity, and in personhood. This is important. There is no distinction in salvation regarding gender. Galatians 3.28 tells us this. That there's neither male nor female. And so we know that, that there is equality in value, in dignity, and in personhood. But we also know that, that, that male and female are also created distinct in their roles. You'll see that in Ephesians and 1 Peter as you begin to study the understanding of this, you even see it really in Genesis. It's there. But here's what I need to say to us today. Equal in value is not undermined by distinct in roles. You hear me? Some people say, well, if you're equal, then you can't be distinct. That's not true at all. Matter of fact, that's, not, that's opposed to God's word. Equal in value is not undermined or diminished by distinct in roles. That's a whole other sermon series, though. Paul teaches this oneness, and he, excuse me, I've skipped ahead. So sexuality, male and female, it images God in all of creation. You, man, and you, woman, are the image of God in creation in this world. You're created in a way that no other part of creation is made. And for a purpose that no other part of creation is made. Now the second aspect I want you to see is this. That God's creational design unites man and woman in oneness. Go to the second chapter of Genesis to see this. Uh, my favorite verse is in Genesis. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. I'll come back to that for just a moment. But it says this, that in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one Flesh. This is the second aspect of godly sexuality, that God's creational design unites man and woman in oneness. We know this, that, that, that God put Adam on the earth and he was naming the animals and, and it took him a while because all that we know, he named all the animals on the earth before this came to his noggin, right? And he said, wait a minute, they all have a partner, but I don't. And God said, what? It's not good that man should be alone. It's not that God didn't know this. God was trying to teach this to Adam. Right? 
because he had created it within Adam. And Adam said, wait a minute, God, I don't have a partner. So what did God do? He put him into a deep sleep. He took a rib from his side and he created Eve, or who would be called Eve. And he brought her to the man, and what did he say? Oh, man! I'm pretty sure that's exactly how he said it, too. Men, you're nervous right now. It's okay for you to laugh. You know that is true. Do not hang me out to dry. You don't have to laugh at it. It's true. And so he says this, that the, that the man would receive what God had brought to him in woman, and he would leave his father and his mother. Who were his father and his mother? They were his primary relational allegiance at that time. But at this time, he said, I'm gone. I'm following her. And so he would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. That, friends, is a creational promise of God. Paul teaches the union the union of oneness in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. And he says, this is such a great mystery of what God does in marriage. And the way that he uses the Greek language in Ephesians 5 there, that wise and, 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 and seasoned scholars have a very difficult time and in fact can't discern whether the oneness he's talking about is a man and a wife in marriage or Christ in the church in salvation. And you know why that's the case? Because yes is the answer to that. One, one in these things. One flesh, friends, is the divine work of God between a man and a woman in marriage. That's the point that God makes in Genesis, and that's the point God has been making ever since with man and woman, uniting them in oneness. Now, the third aspect of his sexuality that he created us in is in verse 25, and it says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Say that with me, naked and unashamed. Y'all didn't do any better in the first service. If you've been around LifePoint very long, you know I like these words. I've told this story several times. I teach it, I'm going to tell it every time I teach from this passage. But, but the first wedding I ever did was my best friend from high school. And uh, I, I married he and his, and his, his, his fiance. And, and uh, they stopped counting at 37 the number of times that I said naked in the ceremony. I was preaching from Genesis 2. And they said when they got to 37, they, they knew I, wasn't, I was not finished and they were not going to count anymore. I had such a reputation early in my ministry for using the word naked in weddings that when I performed my sister's wedding as well, she said to me, do not say naked. And I said, well, you're my sister. I love you. I will do what you ask. So I wrote naked on a piece of paper about the size of this Bible. I pinned it inside my coat. And when I finished saying everything that I was going to say, she had this big look of relief come across her face that her little brother had, in fact, not said naked. And then I did that. And I showed it to everybody in the room. And she knew I had won because I did not say I think this is beautiful, friends. That leave and cleave to become one flesh. God brought a suitable helpmate, naked and unashamed. 
well, this vision for marriage is beyond glorious. You see, the third aspect is that God completes the marriage union in sexual intimacy. Naked and unashamed. Hebrews picks up on this and the, the, the priority that remains for it. And it says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You see, God's design for sexual intimacy, for sexual intimacy remains exclusively within marriage as the highest form of all human relationships. God designed marriage as the highest form and the exclusive relationship for sexuality. Marriage is one man and one woman in one relationship with increasing intimacy for a whole lifetime. And you see what sexual immorality does is it includes all of and every sexual expression outside of the marriage union. And what sexual sin does is it damages and it deceives and it destroys a person against God's created design. In marriage, we see how sin damages and destroys and deceives because it causes us to look upon marriage and not to understand it with the glory and with the beauty and with the value and with the worth that it has, maybe for our own lives or even maybe for us as a society as a whole. Oh, it can't be that important. Can it just be whatever someone wants it to be? Why do we have to choose for everyone? And friends, all I'm saying to you is what God has already said to us. This is what marriage is. But sin and sexual immorality causes us to think differently about it, to feel differently about it, and therefore to live differently in light of that. Sexual immorality damages, deceives, and destroys also in regards to another aspect of our sexuality, and that's in regards to gender. We don't even know who we are because we've denied God's word. And when we live in sin, we say, well, I would never give myself to that. I could never go there. My point is sin deceives. You wouldn't know you're headed there. It damages you. And it destroys you, not only in, in regards to gender and what it is and who we are in it, but in any arrangement that is beyond the design of marital oneness between a man and a woman, and that is beyond any activity outside of marital intimacy. That is a false intimacy, it is a perversion, and it damages, deceives, and destroys every time with every occurrence. The wisdom literature, here's how we know it supersedes the law, because it begins in creation, but it also threads through the wisdom literature. Did you know there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and at least three chapters are given to warning against adultery. Proverbs 2.17 says this, that adultery forsakes human relationships, and it forsakes covenant relationship with God. So you see, adultery is not just about offending another person. It is an offense to God. That's why it's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And when it says that it forsakes, it means that it's destructive towards those relationships, and it's destructive towards the individuals involved, and it is destructive upon all those who depend upon that relationship and are around that relationship, and ergo, it is destructive for the, for the society as a whole. If you don't believe me, ask Kate. 
Ask Kate if that's not destructive to her heart. When she let herself believe something and enter into something, even against some of her own internal, uh, no doubt, red flags that were going off, but she walked into it anyway, ask her if it hurt when Michael couldn't even do anything other than uh, call in order to break up the next. And, you know, if he had had a phone, he could have just texted. That would have been a lot more convenient. the countless women who thought sex would strengthen the relationship with their boyfriend only to find out that it ruined it instead I'm going to give you two warnings and a promise today the first warning comes from Proverbs 6 32 to 35 it says this he who commits adultery lacks sense he who does it destroys himself he will get wounds and dishonor and disgrace will not be wiped away for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge he will accept no compensation he will refuse though you multiply gifts here's the first warning that proverbs 6:32 to 35 gives us sexual sin destroys the individual through stupidity that just simply means a lack of sense i know it's painful isn't it through stupidity, through self-destruction, through self-hatred, and it destroys those around through anger. That's what sexual sin does. Proverbs 7 demonstrates how adultery presents itself with the strongest of temptations, and it leads to destruction. But here's what Proverbs 7 says, that it can be overcome through godly wisdom. And who is godly wisdom in Proverbs? Jesus! Jesus, there he is. He's been there all along. Friends, he was in Genesis 1. He's in Proverbs 7. And he's all in the New Testament. He's here today with us. That's why I say Jesus redeems this stuff. Jesus redeems this stuff. Jesus expounds the law in Matthew 5 to teach that sexual sin is not just about the activity of it. It's not just simply an act of immorality, but rather it's rooted in the heart. Because he says this, if a man looks at a woman... And lust after her. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you go, yeah, but that ain't the same thing. I'm just saying, if you're going to root out sin in your life, you need to understand where it's coming from. You will never win the war fighting it on the surface, trying to curtail your urges and temptations. You must destroy it from whence it sources in you. And that's your heart. That's what Jesus says. The second warning that I'll give to you is from Paul. Paul highlights the damage of sexual sin in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 and 18, he says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own Body. Sexual sin deceives and destroys like no other sin because it attacks one's identity. I need you to get this, friends. I need you to see this because some of you, uh, many of you, don't believe it, especially if you're in the midst of sexual immorality right now. But it compounds sin's destructive force. 
because of where it attacks. You see, the sexual expression engages the deepest core of personal identity. The intimacy of the sexual union is like none other. It joins every sense and faculty of the human being. And when sexual sin occurs, its location at which it occurs enables greater damage, increased destruction, and deeper hurt and more painful scars. Now, this is going to seem weird to you, but I need to ask you, Do you know how to kill an alligator? I told you it was going to seem a little weird to you, right? Alligators have one of the toughest hides, and and many high-powered rifles will not even penetrate the alligator if you're very far at a distance. But the alligator has one susceptible spot. It's right up on the top of his head between his eyes. It's about the size of a quarter or half dollar. I learned these from those Cajuns. And if you shoot the alligator in that soft spot, you can use the smallest bore rifle there is. His brain is small, but his mouth is big. There's a lot of sermon in that, isn't there? Amen? But you'll kill him every time if you shoot him in the right place. Location, location, location. And I'm telling you, sexual sin is so destructive because of location. Let me explain to you. This is what makes sexual intimacy so vulnerable in sin. The body, it involves the most acute physical organs and sensitivities that release chemicals throughout the body into every area of a person's being. The mind involves the strongest and most euphoric synapses of the brain that rush thoughts to the intoxicating highs. The heart involves emotions with the strongest of feelings and affections of the deepest place within a person. And the soul, yes, friends, the soul, the words in the Hebrew scripture for sexual intimacy are are the words for soul uh, and sexual intimacy engage the soul. And so we know that sex engages the soul of a person. It engages one's personhood to produce a body, mind, and heart transcending experience that accesses the deepest recesses of a person. And these places are often unaccessible to and unaccessed by the person themselves outside of, of this moment that they're engaged. And that's what the resonation of intimacy is all about. That's the glory and the beauty that, that God would give us a gift that is so pleasurable, but that is so full and is so engaging of all of our faculties and all of our very being. But that's why I say sexual immorality is so destructive and damaging and deceiving to you at a level at which you cannot even be aware of. Sexual immorality sins against one's own body, body, mind, heart, and soul. It perverts one's view of the physical body. It darkens and alters the pattern of the mind's thinking. If you don't believe me, Google articles about the effect of pornography on men's brains. And there are secular scientists today that are producing scientific results to show how pornography retrains the brain to think in different ways than what is normal for it don't tell me sexual immorality doesn't affect the mind you can't look at a woman in a god-honoring way if pornography is filling your heart and your mind and women you will not think about men in that way if it's filling your heart either the heart involves emotions with the strongest feelings and affections of the deepest place of the person and hear me friends 
what happens is that, that sexual immorality in that place, in the deepest place, it depresses the heart to block hope. What, ha- what happens is when the damage of sexual immorality takes place, scar tissue begins to form around that place in an effort to protect it. But, but, but you need to penetrate to it so that you can release it and forgive it. But scar tissue will not, around, uh, will not allow it because that scar tissue is the absence of hope. And you're trying to protect it from further pain, but the protection is in fact providing more and greater damage and depression sets in to block the entrance of hope. And then it depraves the way that a person understands their own identity, their own value, and their own worth. I must not be lovable. I give my all and they do not love me. Am I not lovable? I must not be acceptable because I do everything that I know to do, but I am not accepted. Imagine what Kate was thinking when she got that call from Michael. It destroys you. You're in a place that you do not control. That's why when it appeals to you with such strong emotions, you often lose your mind in the moment. And might I just offer that in the marriage union, that is by God's design. But in sexual immorality, that is the place of sin's damage and deception and destruction. Sexual sin destroys a person from within the deepest place of personhood in their identity. And out from there through a cognitive and emotional faculty, their thinking and their emotional activity, man, it ruins you. Toward every extremity and sensitivity of life so that you just repeat a pattern of sinful activity over and over again. Friends, I'm not interested in listing, uh, creating a list of sexual sins today. That list is long and extensive, but it's very simple and clear. But I do still owe you a promise. And it is that promise with which I want to lead you now. The New Testament confirms the rampant presence of sexual sin even in the church. And the whole reason I preach this sermon today is twofold. Number one, I'm addressing it as I approach it in the scriptures. But number two, we need to hear this. We not only need to hear this, but we need to live in light of it. Do you know how many sexual sinners Jesus turned away in scripture? Not one. Not one. Here's the promise. Sexual sin destroys at the core of your personhood. But it is never beyond the reach or the power of Jesus to save and to redeem. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how deep I'm in. You don't know how long I've been there. Jesus could not get to me. And I'm saying to you, he's already here with you, waiting to save you from however far you've gotten and to redeem you from however deep it's penetrated into you. He created you. He knows how to fix that. He designed the relationship. He knows how to fix it. The question is this. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? I hope you heard me at the beginning. I'll say it again. Jesus forgives sexual sin. And he redeems every place that it damages for greater joy. As the worship team returns, 
I'm going to ask you to consider that. Jesus redeems sexual sin. And He redeems every place that it destroys. I'm under no delusions that there's very few that this sermon applies to today. As a matter of fact, I'm under the deep conviction there's not a one that's outside of the scope of this. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to end the service a little differently today. I'm going to invite you to turn to Christ and ask you to bring your sin into the light of Christ this morning. Sin will rule you as long as you leave it in the darkness. You cannot conquer it on your own. You will have moments of victory. You will ultimately be defeated. That's the whole point of salvation. You cannot conquer your sin. But Jesus, the conqueror, the one who is, it's already done, stands ready to welcome you today. Jesus saves sinners. You are not outside the reach of Him. You are not too far gone for Him to redeem you. Will you turn to Him? And the way you do that is just simply to confess your sin. And you know what it means to confess your sin? You just cast a light on it. You shine the light of Jesus on it. You bring it out. You've you got to bring it go, man, I couldn't do that. I'd be so embarrassed. I would be so shameful. I'd be, that's right, you'd be everything that that sinful immorality has already heaped upon you. And you'll choose to stay in it if you don't bring it into the light. But if you bring it into the light, what you do is you give it to Christ. And He conquers it. And so confessing it is simply to say, Jesus, I know this is sin. You've said it's sin. And here is my sin. And then you repent. You turn away. You say, Jesus, I don't want this anymore. I need you to kill it for me because it's killing me. Now, friends, here's how I'm going to do this. In just a moment, I'm going to ask the elders to come. And they're going to be at the front. And I'm going to ask you, as the worship team leads us, to come to them. To pray. We're not going to embarrass you, not going to point you out. We're not trying to make something of this that it's not. We're trying to be real about what it's going to take to break this kind of enslavement to sinful immorality in your life. So if you're ready to turn to Jesus, to have Him save you and to redeem you, we want to minister to you in prayer and in help, in counseling if you need that. We will walk with you through this. This is what I'm saying, Life Point Church. We will not be a place that comes and plays church. But if you've got a sexual sin to talk about it, we're not open for business. We're not going to play that in here. If you're here today and you're not struggling with the sexual sin in your life right now, and you're not at a point where you're immersed in the practice of it, and you would honestly say, you know, Pastor, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I'm not saying I'm never tempted. I'm not saying I never have struggles. I'm just saying I'm not actively engaged in it right now. Then can I give you some direction? Would you pray for those who are warring with it in their heart right now? No, you don't know who they are. Jesus does. Would you pray that God would guard your heart 
from becoming like the Pharisees and creating a double standard that says, man, those people got problems. They do have problems. And so do I and so do you. But Christ is sufficient for all of those problems. So would you ask God, maybe you want to come and pray with an elder and just say, you know, I have a problem with this. I think about people in certain ways that gives them no redemptive potential when they struggle with the sin like this. Help me with that, God. Help me with that. Men, some of you need to take the wife of your, uh, the, take the hand of your wife, not the wife of your hand. You need to bring her and you need to pray together because your marriage is not what you know it ought to be. But you're pleading the blood of Christ to make it what he has created it to be for you. Let's be real with God, with one another, most of all with ourselves. As the worship team leads us, I'm going to ask you to stand and as you stand, the elders are going to come and as they come, you follow right behind them and let's begin to do battle where the battle is raging. I'm not asking you to sing in this first song. I'm not asking you to do anything but listen to the Spirit of God and let Him work. Let's stand together right now as we go before the throne. You come as the worship team leads us.